Welcome to the Anchor Podcast, a ministry of Rock Harbor Church. We want to help you grow in your walk with the Lord by an in-depth study of the Word of God. So grab your Bible and let's set a course for spiritual maturity. Here's Pastor Brandon with today's message. Genesis chapter 3. We're only going to look at a few verses in Genesis because this passage launches off into other areas that we need to go into. And we're going to be looking at the consequences of acting independent from God, which Adam and Eve did. But what I wanted to bring in today is we want to learn from their bad example, but we also want to look at a good example through the Lord Jesus Christ. And the issue we're going to look at is how temptation works, what the devil is going to do to us in the realm of temptation. And it's going to be important to understand that there's only three categories that the devil will come to you to tempt you and I to do anything. So you're going to see these three categories with Adam and Eve, and you're going to see these three categories with the Lord and how to combat that. So the issue you have to understand is what areas am I vulnerable to, maybe multiple ones or just a single one, but to understand these areas. So then let me give you the three areas, the three categories of where you will be hit at. First John mentions this, and he encapsulates the three areas in First John chapter 2, 15 through 17. Let's briefly look at this before we look at Adam and Eve, okay? So we can understand where the categories are. In First John 2, 15 through 17, it says this, Do not love the world or the things in the world. What he's talking about is the godless system that's out there that's controlled by Satan and his demonic realm. There's a system out there, and you can see the system at work. It's alive and well in politics. It's alive and well in our media. It's alive and well in the globalists. There's no doubt about it. It's the world system, okay? So he's saying don't love that world system, okay? He goes, but here's the deal. If anyone loves the world, that system, the love of the Father is not in him. Now, he's talking to believers, and he's not saying that they're not saved. He's saying, if you love the world and the world system and what the world can give you, the love of the Father is not in you. What does he mean by that? He means that the love that's supposed to come through you will not be at work in you from God, not only in your personal life, but on your horizontal life in your relationships. The love of God can't work through you because you love something else other than God. And he's talking to believers. Is it possible that a believer can love the world more than God? Absolutely. Absolutely. They're called Laodicean believers. They're worldly. They love what the world offers them. Now they're saved, but they got their fire insurance. And so they go on about their merry life and they start living worldly. Demas was a companion with the apostle Paul. And if you notice what Paul will say about Demas, he'll say, Demas abandoned me on the ministry field, on the mission field. Why? Because he loved this world too much. He loved the world system too much. So even in a companion of the apostle Paul betrayed him and went for the world and what the world has to offer. Okay, what does the world have to offer? Well, it's encapsulated in three areas. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh... Category number one, what the world will offer is things that appeal to our sinful hearts, things that appeal to our physical appetites to use those needs in an illicit way, whether that's food, whether that's sex, whether anything that makes your body feel better, feel good, you will then use. Drugs are another example of the lust of the flesh. 
It's something that makes your body feel good. Now, there's legitimate things and there's illegitimate things. God doesn't want you feeling bad all the time, but let's say you use drugs or alcohol or sex to satisfy those physical desires, those needs, then you're out of bounds. That's called the lust of the flesh. And then he says, the lust of the eyes. This is the second element that the world will put before you. The lust of the eyes has to do with what you see and what you desire. Sometimes this is linked to the lust of the flesh, but it may not be sometimes. It's what you see and what you want. You might want money. You might want power. You might want a position. You might want things in your life. You might, you might want another person, whatever that is. It's what your eyes are desiring. It's what you see through your eyes. And so this becomes what we know as covetousness. You want things that you don't have that are off limits to you. So like with Adam and Eve, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is off limits. But you're going to see her want that. And then the last one, the third category, is the pride of life. The pride of life. This is what we call the vain display of earthly life. What do you mean by this? Anything that would boast your position, your status, your pride, how people look at you, your arrogance, your pretentiousness, boasting about self, or possessions, or even accomplishments, are things that relate to the pride of life. So even if you don't have the lust of the flesh or the lust of the eyes, you might have the pride of life. So all three categories are thrown by Satan to the believer to see if we will bite on one of the three. What you'll see with Adam and Eve, they bite on all three. So sometimes it's a combination, sometimes it's a single factor. But then he continues on, is not of the Father, but is of the world. So this is of the godless system. And the world is passing away and the lust of it. So you're being tempted by a system that is doomed. It's doomed to failure. But he who does the will of God abides forever. That's not talking about salvation. What John is talking about is if you don't become worldly and you remain spiritually mature, what you have is rewards, and you will have those rewards will abide with you. They'll stay with you at the judgment seat of Christ, and you won't lose rewards is the idea. And so John is focusing in on not losing rewards at the bema seat of Christ for the believer. Because if a believer becomes worldly and goes down that path, they will lose rewards. Because you'll want what the world gives you rather than what Christ gives you. And so you'll get that, but you won't get anything at the bema seat. You'll lose rewards. So that's, that's kind of the theme that John encapsulates the three areas. So now here's with that working theme and the understanding of the three areas, here's what I want you to do. Take that template and then now look at what happened to Adam and Eve, okay? So let's go back into Genesis and watch what happens here. It's a complete setup of all three categories. Verse 6 in Genesis chapter 3. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, you see the categories already working. She's already been in a dialogue with Satan, as you recall. And he's put doubt into her mind. Satan has denied what God has said. And so now she's doubting, and she looks at the tree, and she says, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil looks good for food. So what you see happening here, it's a physical appealing to her. It's good for food. This is the category of the lust of the flesh. It's good for food. Now, I want you to look at that word good. Go back to the text where it says good. She is determining in her own mind what is good. 
She's not getting this information from God. She's now making her own decision of what she thinks is going to be good for her. It's no longer rooted in what God says is good. This now is a distortion of reality. You see what Satan is doing to her. He has distorted how she thinks in order to now say what is off limits is good. That's exactly what our world is saying. Right is wrong and wrong is right now, right? That's what they are doing. They're saying what is off limits is now okay for them. It's called the lust of the flesh. This is why you see the sexual deviancy in our world that has no boundaries whatsoever. They're teaching sexual deviancy to the kids in our school. What do you think is going to happen to them? They're going to come out sexually deviant. Shouldn't be shocking that some of these kids get into the things they get into because the world system is using the school system to promote lust of the flesh. So all they're telling our kids in school is just have protection. That's all they say to them. So they're encouraging the lust of the flesh, at least in that category and other things as well. So she's seeing that, and now she thinks, I want that. She's determined good in her own eyes, and that fruit, that fruit, whatever it is, is going to be good for her. Look at the next phrase. Let's jump to the next phrase. That it was pleasant to the eyes. Did you catch that? That's the lust of the eyes right there. It appeals to her emotions. It's attractive. It's not ugly. Do you think if Satan comes before you that he's going to appear as a guy in a red jumpsuit with horns and a pitchfork and a little tail on the end with a triangle? No, he is not. He is not going to appear ugly. He's not going to appear in any distorted form that would scare you. How is he going to appear to you? Very beautiful. Very attractive. He used the nakash and the nakash was a very attractive animal because it, it glowed. It had a luminescent feature to it. It shined like bronze. So he uses an attractive creature to speak through to Eve. Satan will do the same thing to you. He will put attractive things that look good in front of you, whether that's other people, things, whatever, and they will look so good that it's going to be hard to resist. A chocolate cake when you're hungry, when you're on a diet and you've just started your diet, he will stick a chocolate cake right in front of your face. And you're like, man, I just started Nutrisystem last week, man. And what am I doing here? I, I, and, and here's, that's where the temptations, it's always going to be an attractive thing. And that's what he comes to them. So she sees this and it appeals to her emotions and make sure you understand that you have your emotions in check. Satan will appeal to your emotions. That's how he hits you. See, if he can get to your emotions, your emotions sometimes can outrun what you're thinking. You can get so emotional that you don't think straight anymore. And that's how he starts getting people is through their emotions. Put your emotions in check. If you can't control your emotions, that's a good thing to start working on, that my emotions need to be in submission to the truth. Otherwise, this is why he's leading her astray. Now, look at the third category. And a tree desirable to make one wise. There it is. This is the third category, the pride of life. It's desirable to her. It's the root word in the Hebrew is covet. She covets this. She wants it. So this is the root. Before she sins, 
She covets. That's what Satan will try to do to you. Before you physically do something, he will get you first to covet something, to have a desire something that's off limits, and then want it and think that that's going to be good for me. I'm going to go for it. So this tree, the knowledge of good and evil, is desirable to make one wise, she thinks. She was told it's off limits, but she thinks it's going to elevate my status. It's going to make me more than what I am. I don't want to be dependent upon God. I want to be independent of him so I don't have to keep coming back to him and asking for help. I want to be able to determine right and wrong in my own eyes and not be dependent on God. And therein lies the problem even with our society. The pride of life, which causes people to want to determine right and wrong for their own personal lives, is the death knell for most people. They don't want someone telling them what to do. They don't want God telling them what to do. They don't want the Bible telling them what to do. They don't want a pastor or a counselor telling them what to do. I will live my life the way I want to live it. That's the pride of life. I'm going to do things my way, and I'm going to acquire this knowledge apart from God and become a God unto myself. That's really what it's about. So that's what she's doing. It's the ultimate in power. It's the ultimate. is to get knowledge. You've heard this phrase in academics, knowledge is power, right? They don't know what they're saying when they say that. Knowledge apart from God's knowledge is demonic. And I'll show you that with James. But that's what she wants. Knowledge apart from God to determine right and wrong. So guess what? All three categories are now at work. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life. And she has already, folks, succumbed to this in her head. Before anyone makes a physical move to do anything, it will already start in their thinking. Do not be shocked when you see someone physically do something they shouldn't be doing. Because it's already long happened in their head prior to that. It could be months. It even could be years. But they will find when the right opportunity hits them, when the right circumstances are there, and if Satan has implanted that in their mind and they have mealed it around, eventually it's an easy step over to cross into the physicality of the sin and the trespass. You have to, folks, cut it off in the thought, in the mind process when he's implanting those things in your head. That's where the war begins. It's a battle for the mind. It starts here, not in the physical. I hear people say, I just couldn't control myself. I just made a big mistake. No, you were thinking wrong six months ahead of this was the problem. You're not thinking straight. You're not thinking in reality. You're not thinking in truth. And so what happens? Well, it says... She took of its fruit and ate. That's it. At that point, she has crossed the line that she's never coming back from. That's how final this is. Now, it doesn't mean that God's not going to come in and intervene and try to, but something has happened to her that's going to fundamentally change. And then, look, uh, this, this thing that she ate, she thinks that it's going to be great for her. She thinks that everything's going to be better now. But as James has warned in chapter 3, the wisdom that she sought is not the wisdom from God. This wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual. Look at their last phrase. 
demonic. Wisdom apart from God's wisdom can only come from another source, demons, Satan. Guess who is behind false doctrine? Demons. So she has acquired information from Satan, and this is where we get the term occult. It's the uncovering of information that is forbidden to give to humans. So people acquire this information in the occult through demonic intervention, whether that's dealing with mediums, psychics, necromancers, anyone that's in touch with the demonic realm will bring that information into their lives and it is completely demonic, not from God. Scary stuff, scary stuff. But she doesn't sin in isolation and neither can we. What happens? She also gave to her husband with her. Notice the term with her. Don't miss that one. Can you tell me where Waldo's been? You ever seen those comic books? You look for Waldo on the page and you, you, you can see Waldo in the little red shirt. You ever, you ever have one of those things? Where has he been this whole time? There. With her. What is he doing? She has been engaging the Nakash, who has been possessed by Satan. She's talking directly to Satan. And he's sitting there like a bump on a pickle watching this whole thing play out. Dude. Are you going to step up and be a man? Or are you just going to let your wife engage with Satan? No, she can handle it. She's good. She's the spiritual leader of my home. Adam, are you crazy? He is committing the sin of acquiescence. That's a big fancy word for me. I'm not going to do anything. I'm just going to let my wife rule the roost. That's what it really means. She commits the sin of initiation. He commits the sin of acquiescence to his wife. We call this the Eve syndrome and the Adam syndrome. And folks, if you ever see a Christian couple where that's at work, it is a deadly combination. The husband sits like a bump on a pickle, doing nothing spiritually, letting her rule the roost spiritually. You're getting ready to be tempted by Satan if that's the case. Satan will take you down if that's what's going on in your home. He took them down. And guys, they didn't even have a sin nature at that point. He took them down without a sin nature. We possess a sin nature. How much more could we succumb to this? Adam's with her. Don't miss that. He is supposed to be protecting the garden. He is supposed to be the initiator. He is supposed to be the leader. Hey, no one gets in here, man. Uh, the Nakash, you're out. This is the boundaries. You don't come into my home. And it's happening everywhere now. This morning, there are women pastors preaching on Mother's Day. That's forbidden. According to 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12 and on. A woman is not to teach or have an authority over a man, according to the Apostle Paul. But yet, Beth Moore is preaching today to a congregation on Mother's Day. Where's the pastor at? Where's the leadership at of that church? I just use that as an example. Or are you guys sitting like a bump on a pickle doing nothing? And you're letting the woman take authority, your authority? I don't want to answer for that one. Because it's the same thing. 
I'm not saying women can't be in ministry. They can, but they cannot be the senior pastor given a Sunday morning preaching service. You can't do that. That's forbidden. It's not a sexist thing. It's a creation thing. And what's happening right here is happening all over America and in our churches. Huh. So here's the deal. I'm going to stop there with Adam and Eve because next week we're going to look at the consequences that just immediately hit them. Just immediately when they cross this line, just everything falls apart at this point in time. Bad example of what not to do. Now we need to move into a good example. We need to move from them to the second Adam, Messiah. Because Messiah then, as the second Adam, will go through the similar trial that Adam and Eve went through, but in a worse condition. What do you mean? Let me give you the setting. Adam and Eve are in a garden provided for food, water, a lush environment, a paradise on earth, or communion with God. They have everything they could possibly want in this perfect environment, and yet they still succumb to Satan's temptations. Let's move to the Messiah. Messiah now is in the Judean desert. I'll show you some pictures of the Judean desert, but it's harsh. There's nothing there. There's no water. There's no food. It's horrible. He's been fasting for 40 days. He is in anything but a paradise. He's in a very tough environment. And now Satan is going to come to him to do the same tricks he tried with Adam and Eve. So now let's jump into the Gospels. This is in Luke chapter 4. Then Jesus, being filled with the Holy Spirit, that's a key phrase. This is all for our example of how to avoid temptation. The first key you have to understand is you have to be filled with the Holy Spirit. You already possess the Holy Spirit as a down payment, but being filled by the Holy Spirit means I'm controlled by him, which means that I'm obedient. And when you're obedient, the Holy Spirit can control you. So this is the idea of yielding to the Holy Spirit. When you yield to the Holy Spirit, it means I am falling under submission to the Lord and following him. That's the first thing in overcoming temptation is you must be yielded to the Holy Spirit so he can control you. He will not control a believer who's out of control. You simply won't do that. So you have to yield to him your own desires, so to speak. And it says he returned from the Jordan, and this is important. Why did he return? What was happening at the Jordan? He got baptized. And what happened at his baptism? The father had said, this is my beloved son, a declaration that Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah and also is the son of God, making him equal with God. That's what's happened. And was led, because he's being controlled by the Holy Spirit, by the Spirit, into the wilderness. Let me show you what the wilderness looks like. You see the Dead Sea area? And then you have Jerusalem up there. You have the Judean Desert and Masada's down there. And then you have the Dead Sea. This is a current map because you have the salt mines there, but they didn't have salt mines back in Jesus' day. But obviously the Judean Desert on the west side of the Dead Sea is what we're talking about. Jericho's up there. We think John the Baptist was baptizing the head of where the Dead Sea is, where the Jordan River meets it, that he was somewhere in that area. So Jesus baptized there and then comes down into this Judean Desert here. And that's where the temptation is given to him in those 40 days. Let me show you some pictures of what it looks like. There's nothing there. There's no plants. There's nothing. No animals. It is just bare, man. It is bare, bare, bare. This is uh, one of the paths that leads into Jerusalem. It's called the Valley of the Shadow of Death. 
as you would take these paths back to Jerusalem, it's called the Valley of the Shadow of Death. That's where David got the term from, is from the Judean deserts. And you can see how barren it is. I mean, it's parts of Israel that are completely lush in vegetation and all this, but when you get into the desert area in the wilderness, it is like the moon. So this is where he's at at this time. Okay, so let's return to the text. Notice this, being tempted for 40 days by the devil. Let's just stop there. It wasn't just this last part at the end of 40 days. All during the 40 days, Messiah was being tempted by the devil in various ways. So this is an onslaught. Adam and Eve just had a simple test. Don't eat of the tree. And they, they, they couldn't keep that one. So Messiah is being bombarded for 40 days, just beaten down by Satan trying to tempt him. So we get to the end of the 40 days is where we're at. And it says, and in those days, he ate nothing. So it hasn't been eaten for 40 days. And afterward, when they had ended, he was hungry. So he has a natural desire to feed his body, right? And so guess what's going to happen? The temptation of the lust of the flesh, or we should say desire of the flesh to eat, is now going to be tempted by Satan in this environment. And so the devil comes to him in verse 3 and says this, And the devil said to him, If you are the son of God, or the term in Greek is since you are, not if. The devil knows who he is. He says, since you are the son of God, which means you're the second person of the Trinity, you're equal with the Father, command this stone to become bread. So it's the lust of the flesh or the desire of the flesh to eat, which is a natural desire, but to use it off limits. Now, what do you mean by that? It's natural to eat. But in this 40-day fast, he is depending on the Father on when to eat. So this is the whole point about the Messiah. Unlike Adam, Messiah is completely dependent on the Father. He will only do what the Father tells him to do, completely. So if the Father tells him not to eat for 40 days, he will refuse to eat for 40 days. He will only eat if the Father tells him to eat. That's how it works. And so what Satan is trying to do is look. Use your independence as the second person of the Trinity. You are the son of God. You can make this this stone turn into bread because you are God. Use your power as God to work independently from the Father. Now, here's some theology. Could Jesus do this? Yes, he could because he's God. But he would not be functioning correctly as the Messiah because as the Messiah, he must be completely dependent upon the Father. It's called the kenosis in theology, which means he will give up his independent use of his divine attributes, like omnipotence, creating bread out of a stone, to submit that use to when the Father wants him to use it. So Jesus didn't give up his deity. He gave up the independent use of his deity in submission to the Father. When the Father tells him to do something, he'll do it. If he tells him to do a miracle, he'll do it. But the devil wants them to act independent. It's to, to fulfill the lust of the flesh. Okay, so where, where's this heading? What's behind this? He is trying to get Messiah to doubt the love of God. Just like Satan made Eve doubt the love of God. Well, why is he putting a restriction on a tree? He must not love you. He, he knows if you eat of it, you'll be like him. He's holding back on you. So the, the, the temptation that's coming to Jesus is this. If the Father loves you so much, 
Why is he making you wait 40 days to eat? Isn't he a loving father? Shouldn't he want you to eat? Look, he's not going to come up. He's not going to provide. You better provide for yourself. Make this rock into bread because God must not love you because 40 days is a long time to go without eating and he's not giving you bread to eat. The first temptation that's going to come to you that gets your mind to think is you're going to start doubting the love of God. Well, your life would be a lot better if God would just give you a million dollars, right? Yeah, it would. I can pay all my bills. Why doesn't he do that? Why didn't he give Jesus bread after 40 days? Why didn't he do that? But what Jesus is doing, he's not questioning. He's trusting. He's giving us a model. So the first thing that's going to grump you up, that gets you messed up in temptation is entitlement. I deserve to eat. I deserve to have a better life. I deserve a better spouse. I deserve better this, better job. I deserve this. Why doesn't God just provide this for me? He's all powerful. He can do all this. Why doesn't he do it for me? He must not like me so much, I guess. If you think God doesn't love you, what would it do to you? You'll start pulling away. So he's got you. Once the devil can get you to pull away and doubt the love of God, your distance between God will start growing, and then you're vulnerable to temptation. That's how it works. And that's what he's trying to get Messiah to do. But Jesus won't do it. Refuses it. And so Jesus responds to him in this, in verse 4. But Jesus answered him saying, it is written. Man, notice he uses the word man. Why? Because he's functioning in the incarnation. So Jesus added an additional nature. He is God and man at the same time. So he's talking from his manhood. Man, the emphasis for us, shall not live by bread alone, to the physical, simply, but by every word of God. Deuteronomy 8, 3. Bingo, rifle shot. Right to the lie. He's trying to get Messiah to doubt God's love, but Messiah fires back and with the truth and says this, hey, look, we don't as human beings live physically on just food. We have, to, we only live by the life giver, God himself. So we're a physical and spiritual being altogether. And you know, notice he says, he says, but by every word of God. And the idea is, if God wants to meet my physical needs, he will meet it in his own timing and his own place and how he wants to do that. So, so devil, I'm completely trusting. If God gives his word, then I will eat. If he doesn't, I'm not going to do it. Because man needs to know that life comes from the life giver, not from just a piece of bread. And so he shuts the whole thing down. Now we'll watch the second temptation. Then the devil, taking him up on a high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. This is an appeal to the lust of the eyes, the lust of the eyes. He shows him all the kingdoms. Verse 6, and the devil said to him, all authority I will give to you. What authority does Satan have? Well, he's the usurper. Remember what he did to Adam and Eve in the garden? He usurped them. By getting them to sin, he usurped them and became what's called the God or ruler of this world, the world system. So he does have that authority, but he's a usurper. It's illegitimate. He goes, I will give you and their glory, for this has been delivered to me, 
Well, you did it by conning Adam and Eve. It hasn't been delivered. You usurped them. And I will give it to whomever I wish. But at what price? What's happening here? The kingdoms of this world right now are usurped by Satan. He does control them. There's no doubt about it. This offer that you're seeing the Messiah give, Satan will do it one more time. He will offer the kingdoms of the world one more time to an individual who might be alive today. And this individual will take the offer. Who is he? It's the Antichrist. He will one day offer these kingdoms of the world to the Antichrist, and the Antichrist will take them. And then, obviously, we won't be here, but that plunges us into the tribulation, obviously, with that deal being cut between the devil and the Antichrist. But this is what's happening here. And so what is he doing? Well, he's saying, look, Jesus, I understand the plan of God. Because he does. He does understand the plan of God. He was told it in Genesis chapter 3, and now he understands what Messiah will do. He reads the Scripture. He knows the Scripture. He knows it better than Christians do sometimes. And he's saying, look, Jesus, I'll give you all these kingdoms, but let's not go through the cross thing. Let's not go through the suffering thing. I can give you them now, and you won't have to go to the cross. She's wanting Messiah to take these kingdoms and bypass the suffering of the cross and redemption. But Messiah will not do that. Because if he accepts these kingdoms from Satan, what's to say Satan won't take them back? But the Father has already promised all the kingdoms to the Messiah, according to Psalm 2. But something must happen in order for Messiah to regain what Adam and Eve lost. In order to regain the world, something must be done. First, redemption must be made of these human beings if we're going to give them back the kingdom. So Messiah must die on a cross for them. Two, in order for the kingdom to enact and for Messiah to rule and reign, redemption must happen not only for individuals only, but also for Israel as a nation because there's promises made to them. And two, and three, the judgment of Satan must occur and that judgment will be rendered on the cross. So Jesus knows this. So he won't take those kingdoms. Because Satan wants him to worship him. And he says in verse 7, look there. Therefore, if you will worship before me, all will be yours. That's the condition. Just bow a knee to me, Jesus. So the, he wants the second person of the Trinity to bow a knee to this created creature who is a cherub. Not happening. Verse 8. And Jesus answered and said to him, Get behind me, Satan, for it is written... You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. Deuteronomy 6.13. The idea of get behind me is, it's the idea of a metaphor of us walking with the Lord. We're told to walk with the Lord, walk in the light. It's a whole metaphor of fellowship, okay? The idea of get behind me is that Satan is in front of him, preventing him from walking with the Lord. So the idea is get behind me so I can keep walking to do what I need to do. He wants to create a stumbling block for the Messiah. And that's what Peter tried to do. Remember that? And he says, Satan, get behind me. Told that to Peter. And, and the idea then is, is the same thing will happen to you and I. What will happen is as you're walking with the Lord, and I'm going to tell you what, the closer you walk with the Lord, the higher in service you get, you will be targeted. And what will happen is as you're walking, Satan will come in front of you and stand and hold you back and say, wait a second, wait a second, have you thought about this? 
and he tries to hinder you and prevent you from going any further in your walk. Now, he's fine with you backing off and saying, okay, yeah, you're cool. I'm just going to stay right here and not do much. He's cool with you being a wallflower. He's cool with you being a sponge and just soaking up and never giving out. He's cool with that. The minute you want to give out, the minute you want to serve, the minute you want to get closer to Messiah, boom, hindrances. That's when you have to realize that the hindrance in front of you, you need to go around and say, get behind me, Satan. He's trying to prevent you from doing what you're called to do. Don't let him stop you. He wants you discouraged. He wants you to give up. He just said, hey, look, I'll release the pressure if you just give up. Give up to your spouse. Let her do what you want her to do, or she wants to do. Give up to your kids. Let them have, they're putting pressure on you. Let them have their way. I'll release the pressure on you. And so he wants you to give up, stop, quit, and I'll leave you alone. But Messiah is, is determined that he won't be stopped. He is going to that cross. So that's why he says, get behind me. Verse 9, the last one, the last area. Then he brought him to Jerusalem, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, if you are the son of God, or since you are, throw yourself down from here. The pinnacle of the temple is the southeastern corner of the temple mount. And so this is a model But on the the corner right there, that corner would look down into the Kidron Valley. That's the highest point of the temple. So that's where he brought him. And what does he want him to do? Well, throw yourself down. For it is written. Let's go back to the text of verse 10. For it is written. So Satan's going to use scripture now. He shall give his angels charge over you to keep you. This is Psalm 91, by the way. It's a messianic psalm. And in their hands, they shall bear you up lest you dash your foot against a stone. (laughs) Wow, that's pretty cunning. He's using Scripture against the one who wrote the Scripture. Pretty interesting. He's misquoting it. He's leaving a part out, by the way. But he's also doing what the cults do every day, misapplying this. What's happening here? Well, Jesus, if you're saying you follow the Scriptures and the Word of God, then why don't you do the Word of God? Here's what the Word of God says. The Messianic Psalm, Psalm 91, and the devil knows it very well, says that the Messiah will be completely sheltered and taken care of by the Father. So, prove it. And by the way, this is the pride of life, because if you throw yourself off and angels come out of the sky to carry you all the way down so that you light on your feet and don't kill yourself, then all would see and proclaim you to be the Messiah. And you guys could start the kingdom and get everything underway. Wouldn't that be great? This would be good for you to let everyone see your glory, to let them see the angels that you command. Let them see it. Follow. If you obey the word of God, follow what Psalm 91 says. Does Psalm 91 give the Messiah a blank check to do anything he wants? No. In verses 14 through 16, It's all dependent on the obedience of the Messiah. I will shield you only when you're obedient. Now, obviously, Jesus was never disobedient, so he always had the protection of the Father. But the Psalm 91 that the devil's quoting is not a presumptuous psalm. 
that not only did the Messiah, but any believer throw themselves in harm's way and throw themselves off the temple, that you can claim Psalm 91 and God will rescue you? No. If you jump off a building, gravity will take you all the way down and smash you to pieces. And Psalm 91 will not come in effect. Because why? Look what he says. And Jesus answered and said to him, It has been said, or it is written, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. Deuteronomy 6.16 Psalm 91 is not a blank check to put yourself in precarious positions that only God could rescue you. If you do something like that, you're going to get hammered. Just by reality. He's not going to, he's not obligated to rescue you. And so what, what Messiah is coming back is saying, you're misinterpreting Psalm 91. It is not a blank check. It says, it's about in balance with Deuteronomy. It says, don't tempt the Lord your God. Don't do that. And so he's not going to do that. That's presuming on God. Now, you've seen all three areas. And you've seen the success of the Messiah. But what did you notice about the success of the Messiah? He didn't do a shotgun approach to the lies. Satan is throwing pinpoint arrows, targeted arrows, to specific issues. Lies. The Messiah is firing back the antidote to the lie. The specific scripture that counteracts the lie. That's how you deal with temptation. You must know what lie is being perpetrated in the temptation in order to fire back the truth so that you can be set free from the temptation. That's how it works. Oh, but that brings a whole new obligation for me. So if I just say, you come to me and you say, Brandon, I'm having a lot of temptation in XYZ area. I would be a fool to say, go back and read the Gospel of John. Why is that not? Well, you say, well, you're reading Scripture. Yeah, but you don't know what lies you're being hit with. So if you read the book of John, you wouldn't know what to look for. This is the game Satan plays. He's hiding the lies you and I believe. He doesn't want to see the falsehood that you believe. He's covering it. So you don't think, so that's why you start to become susceptible to temptation because you don't know where the lie is. The secret in temptation is to find out what the lie is and then combat it with the specific truth that goes to that lie and that can disarm it. So what ends up happening though, because the lie is veiled and you don't know where the lie is and what's going on inside of you, it causes illicit desires. And you don't know where these desires come from. Maybe it's just lust. I don't know where all this lust is coming from. And people just chalk it up. I'm just a lustful man. No, you're a wounded man. We got to find out where the wound is and where you're hurt because you're trying to use something to satisfy a need. You think it's lust and the devil wants you to think it's lust, but on the surface it is. But deep down inside, you believe a lie. You believe a lie about yourself, about reality, or about God. It's one of those three areas. Hence, in order to get the truth to the lie, because we, well, we want you to read Scripture, but you've got to know the antidote. And you've got to know how that Scripture fits. Let me give you an example. Now, this is crazy, but a kid was told by his mom growing up because he wouldn't eat black-eyed peas. And she said, I'm going to tell you what, you'll never get a wife because... 
if you don't eat your black-eyed peas, you'll never get married. He grew up thinking that all wives cook black-eyed peas, and he better like black-eyed peas, otherwise he's not going to get married. No joke, man. This is crazy, dude. He grew up like that thinking, oh, if I want to get married, I better like black eyes. You guess what happened when he was an adult? He doesn't like black-eyed peas. So guess what? He didn't get married. Because he thinks all women cook black-eyed peas. I know that sounds crazy, but you know, it's legit. It's a case study, dude. The dude grew up thinking all women cook black-eyed peas, and he's got to like them. Now, it gets more serious than that. That's crazy. I know. That's, but that's what lies do. They make you crazy. But let's talk about another case study. Let's use the name Margaret. Margaret's 40 years old. On the surface, you go to her house, everything's put in order, it's clean, nice, everything's great. She's dialed in, she's always put together, she looks great. But deep down inside, she's struggling. And you know why? Because once a year, her mother comes to live with her for two weeks. Yeah. And the mother comes, and the first thing the mother does when she enters the house, and the house is immaculate, she does this. Mom comes to visit. The house is immaculate. It's been vacuumed. Guess what the first thing mom does? She comes in, puts her purse down. She goes into the closet and gets the vacuum out and starts vacuuming. How do you guys live in this pigsty? I don't know how you do it. I couldn't live in filth like this. And the house is immaculate. The house is immaculate. And Margaret says, you know what? Ever since I was a little girl, my mom made me feel inferior. Ever since I was a little girl, my mom used to say I was hopeless. And when I get around my mom... Like, I can't even drive the car right. I can't even cook right. I burn things when my mom is here, and I just feel on edge with my mom's here. You know what's happening? The mom gave the little girl a lie. You're hopeless. You can never match up to my standards, no matter how hard you try, and you're a failure. That's what the mom has communicated. But you, you see those examples, and you think, this is the kind of junk people are living with. And it's one of those three categories, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, or the pride of life that he's going to hit you in because he's hiding a lie deep down inside you that you don't know is there. But you there, you believe it. You either believe God is not loving, he doesn't care for me, or I'm a failure, I'm an idiot, I'm stupid, I'll never succeed because someone drilled that into your head. And because of that, you carry with you susceptibility to one of the three areas. And folks, let's use an example. If you were addicted to pornography, do you really think the issue is that we just get rid of the computer, we get rid of the TV, we get rid of your phone, and then that solves your problem? You're fooling yourself if you think that's the problem. It's way deeper than you think. It's not about turning off that stuff. That's helpful, but that's never going to get to the core issue, ever. You have to expose the lie like Jesus did with Satan and then respond it is written. And when you learn how to do that, you will start seeing victory in your Christian life. The truth sets you free, right? That's what he said. But if you don't know the lie, you won't know what sets you free. Thanks for downloading the Anchor Podcast. We hope this study was a blessing to you. Support for this podcast comes from your generous gifts and donations. For more information about our ministry, we invite you to check out our website, rockharborchurch.net. Also, check out our YouTube channel, Rock Harbor Church Prophecy Update, where we focus on signs of the times and present a wide range of sermons and discipleship lessons. So until next time, keep looking up, for our redemption draws near.